I've been thinking a lot recently about something you said in reply to me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to uh, dress it up in some cake so it, it uh, keeps the innocent innocent. But, you know, we it, my, my print. So let, let, let me let me preface this. I had a two week vacation and then we just came off. I just came off of a four day vacation because it's the fourth, but the fourth is on Tuesday. So like, what are you going to do work on Monday? Like, that's ridiculous. I mean, am I no wrong? Way. You just no, way. no one worked on Monday. Yeah. Yeah. So so, you know, I feel like. I feel like, as I was describing to someone, like, sometimes vacations are too long, <laughs> which is like, which is like my constant thing I'm always seeking counsel from you on is like, I, I feel like I'm not working enough, right? Like, I, I need to work more or something. And, and you know, you're, you're basically like, no, you don't need to concern yourself with work. You need to figure out how to optimize your working and your work-life balance. And so, but it's just like, so, so what I want to get from you, Brandon, is some advice. How do I feel satisfied like there is no to-do list for to not doing anything, right? I can't check off that I haven't done anything and and be satisfied with that. Like I just get angsty that I'm not I'm not doing enough. Like I was writing this in my little captain's log this morning is like I need to uh I need to rediscover how to have fun. Uh and and I was realizing so we were out with our friend uh, Charles, which you know, if you want to follow the cavalcade of of what Charles and I are up to, uh that's the wrong way of putting it. We used to have this podcast, Drunk and Retired, a little self-promotionally. If you go to Cote.show, we record there every now and then. But we went out to his uncle's lake house here uh, here on Lake Travis. And and I was I was reflecting this morning that everyone spent a lot of time just sitting there in the water floating, enjoying an adult beverage. And I was not sitting there in the water floating. So, like, this is a small uh, symptom. But, like, why was I not sitting in there in the water floating, enjoying an adult beverage? I don't I felt angsty about it. So like so Brandon, is there a trick I can use or do I just need some better medication? <laughs> well, I think we all need some better med- medication of uh uh to uh to address that, but like I do think maybe what it comes down to and I I think you know, I think I do this sometimes as well is you're even when you're sort of relaxing or you kind of have free time, uh, you don't do well with an idle mind. Like you need to be intellectually engaged, mm-hmm. right? And you're either doing that on your own because, like, when you probably weren't floating, you were contemplating this. You're probably like kind of thinking through like this whole thing, right? About like, well, what should I do? And you know, so you're sort of trying to find that. So I find like even like when you're with the family, right? Sort of like trying to create activities that really kind of keep you like you know you're engaged with your mind or in this case like i know like i know charles a little bit but like you could have probably floated around and had an adult beverage and you know not necessarily recorded a podcast but had some type of intellectually interesting conversation with charles right so just that's probably the thing that you need to do is like you do that um, like I recent vacation, we did a lot of pool time and, you know, I sort of was, uh, was there with my brother. We were talking about just a whole bunch of stuff, catching up on a lot of things. But at the same time, as I was doing that, I was just throwing my six year old son, like just throwing him in the water because that's what he wanted to do, but sort of solve both problems, right? It's sort of like yeah. keeping him busy and then keeping me busy with, you know, trying to like, just stay intellectually uh, engaged. Cause I think what happens sometimes is on a prolonged vacation, you know, you're with the family and you're having fun. And you're like, this is this is what it's all about. I got to be having fun, doing all these things. But you sort of lack, you know, some maybe maybe it's professional engagement, whether it's around technology or things that you're interested in. You got to like work. You know, you shouldn't try to like prevent that from getting into your vacation. You should kind of work to like have that in there. So like in this case, right? You and Charles could have probably just talked about, I don't know, something was going on related to like. Yeah. 
business or technology, and that maybe would have made floating around in the pool a little bit more fun. Now, now th- this raises two items, right? One of them is the uh, uh, I, I've, I've in the past, let's say, five years, I've learned that uh, one of the things you can do to cope with having to talk to people is you find out something they know about and you just quiz them on it. Which, which I still like, don't don't cash in on as that as much as I can, right? So you can you can, uh, th- th- which is to rephrase it. Outside of the tech world, I often find it hard to talk with people about things because you know I don't follow sports or really do anything. I guess you can always talk about kids, but that's also that's always fraught with me because uh, uh, the way the way the way I talk in this podcast is not the way I talk in real life. <laughs> so, so my my ability to just sort of like be a uh, rhetorical uh, like uh ignorant bull in a china shop and spew a lot of opinions that doesn't work when i'm at the uh the annual halloween party or the black donkey party and you're just trying to figure out how to uh, talk to this person uh or whatever so but what you can do is find out something they do you don't know about and just quiz them about it and i think i think i just need to build up my confidence that they're actually interested in telling me that and so that that would be a, that's a good rhetorical trick so well, this is uh, I think what how to win friends. You know that'll um, you yeah. know, certainly we all, me included, right? Like our favorite topics are generally ourselves. So I think most people, if you can, now sometimes the problem there, right, is those topics, while interesting to you, are not interesting yeah. <laughs> to the other person. But if you can get people going on the right direction, then absolutely people will generally, um, you know, start opening up and give you a lot of information. And I also find like when you're, I was in. Um, vacation in mexico is great resort it's super fun and it's like it's like just really interesting to me like how do people end up working at resorts like mm. just the bartender and like because you know there's always this um joke sometimes i probably say it every vacation so it's, you know, i'm sure my family's tired of it but or maybe if my brother i commented to him probably something like you know we basically once a year we come here and we uh, enjoy this vacation, but this guy is here every single day, right? He's here every day. It is work, but it's a really nice work uh, environment, at least, right? It's a vacation, at least from the outside, it is. So it's always interesting to hear like those stories. How did someone get there? What yeah. do they do? How do they like it? Like I always think, you know, just just any tourist area is sort of just fascinating. Like how does it run behind the scenes? And then if you get into the business, it's like. Well, like, are these guys having, they don't call them scrums, but a lot of times they have like a daily meeting, right? You know, it's like a hospitality person. This is oh, what yeah? we're doing. It's kind of like, I just find that kind of stuff sort of just fascinating what? to understand what's going on. And so if you get people going, right? And then, of course, a lot of times people that work in like vacation areas, they just have great life, life stories. They were like, I was traveling, I was climbing Mount Everest, and I went here and I went there. You know, it's just, they tend to lead just very interesting lives. So that's a shortcut. Um, if you want, or the trade show shortcut is like anyone that walks up to me in a booth, because I am generally so tired of giving the demo. Really, I won't even give the demo anymore. Like I just don't want to do it. I'll just I'll be like, "What do you do?" Or like, "What do you guys have here?" And I'll just say some answer, and then I'll say, well, "So, what do you do? Where are you from?" And then you know, it, that generates lots of interesting conversations, right? It's mm-hmm. always like a super fun way to have like when you get bored in a trade show, it's just everybody that comes up, you know, you basically start interviewing them. And then eventually if they show the right interest or something, maybe you can have a real you can show them a demo that's contextual to what they want. And I think the same thing with just doing that in life. Where possible, just start asking questions and then eventually you'll have something that you can add back uh and that keeps the conversation going. Yeah. Yeah. See, I, I like how ironically we uh we've overanalyzed the situation of not analyzing. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but but I think I, to to that end, I think I think we've constructed kind of a a matrix, a quadrant, which is. There's, uh, I think I first heard maybe like John Roderick and someone talking about this where, uh, it's called, it's like you, you, the taxi cab driver problem, right? Where like when you get into a taxi cab or an Uber, like you want to ask them all about this, that, and the other, but they've always that like they, they know that and they tell people that all the time. So maybe they're more interested in you in reverse. And so, so there's this matrix of like things people that's fascinating to you that people could talk about. And one of them is like the taxi cab problem. And then the other one, maybe the height of the matrix, the, uh, the leader's quadrant is, uh, is things that are new and novel to the person you're talking to and also new and novel to you. And then you can quiz them about it or not. I don't know, but, uh, it is, uh, you got, you got to figure that out. That's that's good. I think the other thing I have to figure out, aside from possibly the the, the better medication, is uh, people actually are interested in talking about themselves, uh, which I, I shouldn't I shouldn't I shouldn't project myself onto them uh, so much. It's not so much that I'm not interested in talking about myself. I mean, I do do a lot of podcasts. It's more that when I'm in these situations, I would just rather not talk. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the old. Well, you know, the other answer could simply be uh, put on your uh, favorite pair of earbuds and you ah. know, crank, crank in some uh, some podcasts yeah. or audiobooks. Or because I do think that's another thing. And this is more like finding a good family rhythm. It's like you know, everyone's wired a little differently, right? It's like, hey, man, I, I do. Like sometimes I will like you know just chill on the uh, on the beach or on in the chair and just like listen to some stuff and just relax and then you yeah. know like. Let the family, uh, especially as my son's getting older, let him just sort of like have this organized chaos in the pool. And it's like, yeah, this is working pretty well. And then, you know, then at some point take a break and I go jump in and join the organized chaos. He's got to find your groove there. Now, now, you know, when you're relaxing, what you really want sometimes is a really nice place to be supine. What, what, you know, and uh, we got two of these in the house here, these Casper mattresses. And they're they're very comfortable. I have uh, I've almost fallen asleep on them when I'm putting my kids to bed because <laughs> I don't know about I don't know about, about about your your situation at bedtime, but my kids refuse to stay in the room and go to sleep unless you're in the room with them while they go to sleep. It's uh, uh you might you know, I wouldn't call it a disaster, but it's an unfortunate thing that that we have going on. Like like whatever happened to the days that I grew up in the 80s where I got the basis of all of my ideas of how life should be where like you uh you read the story and then the parent you know is kind of like hanging half in the doorway and they're like I'm going to turn off the light little Johnny and then they turn it off and the parents leave like that, that is that a reality does anyone actually do that or is that just in like movies I I hate I mean I feel bad about saying this out loud but like yeah like this is oh. what we do like there is a set routine right in our case it's uh um, I mean, there's like the bath time, which is my son's old enough. He's handling that on his own, but you do kind of have to just, you know, kind of double check, like did stuff happen. But then after that, it's like, get your pajamas on, right? Then two stories, usually with mom, it's two stories with dad. It's actually now become like, I'll actually just play Minecraft with them for like 15 minutes. Cause I just, you know, I know this is like, <laughs> now that's like the worst parenting advice of all time. But like, I don't know. I just get tired of the books. My wife likes reading them. So I just don't do it. But then we go, then Either the two stories are a little Minecraft time, then he gets in, and then he likes – he you know for a while it was like we would sing him two songs, but now he really sings two songs. That's it. Walk mm. out, lights off, over. Man. He goes to bed. How did you so, get to that point? I don't know. You know, like people have asked us this. I think some of this is like, you know, it's all nature nurture thing. It's like I think there's a strong nature component that I think we had nothing to do with. Mm. And then we have been – and I know, oh, you know, this is very controversial, so I don't – 
you know, I guess I'm going to endorse it because I say it, but, you know, I understand if people don't believe in this, like we've been a very scheduled family with, you know, from the times he was an infant, right? Like yeah. we've always kind of like, you know, followed some uh, routine, which is like really programmed him to enjoy those routines. And of course, now he's in school and they have routines. So it's just, he just seems to gravitate toward it. It works well for our family. So I don't want to get any bad tweets or anything. Yeah, this is yeah. not your style. I get it, but it works. It has worked really well for us. Yeah. I think, I think, I think there's a high correlation between uh, nightly bath time routine and effective putting the kids to bed routine. I've noticed that. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Anyways, so you know, uh, while we don't have any mattresses to hustle, I was I was told that the 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 Casper company is going to give us some fifty dollar off discount code at some point, which you know that's fun. Uh, but over there at Casper, they are looking to hire. I was told I was talking with uh, with our buddy over there, Clive, and he said they have two positions for a senior SRE position. Now, a senior SRE, first of all. If you don't know what that is, regardless of if you're interested or you like sleeping on uh, comfortable mattresses, you should go read the Google SRE book. It's a fantastic overview of uh, anyone who's interested in this would like reading that book. But it's basically the people who uh, make sure that the infrastructure that they have, the platform, as we would say in Pivotal Land, is uh, is operating correctly, has all the great services, and has been programmed well, such that the other part of their job is making sure that things keep up and running, doing uh, production-grade ops and working with the teams to uh, keep things up and making sure that people can buy their comfy mattresses. And I would assume there's also sort of like the back-end stuff that maybe they uh, they maintain. But anyways, being a senior SRE at a place like Casper would be fun. It's, uh, you know, SREs are one of the most uh, interesting, renowned jobs nowadays. Uh, it's also fun being a developer, but uh, it's not often that you get the chance to uh, go go work at a place like that. And I'm willing to bet that all, if you're into uh, telling people about your travails, uh, they'd be all into uh, having you go out and talk about stuff. Now, I went and looked up. I don't know if Glassdoor is anything, just like I'm not sure what a stitcher is. You know, someone actually walked up to me in a conference and explained it to me. I, I actually do what a stitcher is. You don't have to uh, send me any email about that. But uh, I went over to Glassdoor, and I think the last time I looked, they're like 4.7 out of 5 stars. So that's pretty highly rated. And if, if I read it correctly, they also have nap pods where you can not only sample the product, but you can use them, which I'm sure if you're doing your uh, your Casper senior SRE job, you will have some time to take some naps here and there because everything will just be humming along well. You'll have automated and programmed things and negotiated your uh, your SLOs or whatever they use. So anyhow, if you're interested in uh, checking out those jobs, applying for them, you can either just send a, uh, a resume and, I don't know, maybe a delightful story or whatever you like over to jobs at casper.com. Be sure to mention that you heard about it here so that they know that uh, uh, we matter and we're effective. Also, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, the actual job listing uh, that you can go look at. Um, and you can also just go to casper.com slash jobs uh, to check that out. And, you know, be sure to mention that you heard about it here. And then uh, maybe we can help other people out who are, who are looking for jobs. I like it. Casper, a better way to sleep. Yeah. Good luck. Good yeah. luck, job applicants. Also, uh, I should mention, we got we have a whole bunch of conference discounts, which I'll put in the show notes to abridge our mid-rolly stuff. But I did hear... Uh, that uh, in another successful bit of software-defined talk to advertising, there are many people who have registered with our code to go to DevOps Days Minneapolis, which is July 25th and 26th. I'm not going to go for various reasons that are, you know, okay and not okay. It'd be fun to go. It's a good conference. But if you use the code SDT, 
software-defined talk. You see the initialization. You can get 20% off of registration, which effectively makes it dirt cheap to go. And uh, it's, it's a great conference. You should go check that out. So as, as, uh, as people have probably figured out, Matt Ray is not on this episode. Uh, so that means that uh, we have not gotten a list of extensive news, which I will go write too much analysis about. So uh, <laughs> Brandon and I were talking about some more general topics. And I, th- I think, I think you settled, we settled on a good collection of them that are all kind of related. Because you said uh, you'd read that Attention Merchants book, which I read that. And I, I kept planning on, I did this, this small uh, self-managed stint of writing book reviews over at the new stack. I should go back and run that. But that's the one that I hung up on is I was going to check out this combo brand. And I was going to write a review about Attention Merchants and then uh, those that Chaos Monkeys one. I was thinking it would be oh, like an that, academic historic study nice. of advertising. And then like, here's how those assholes are actually operating nowadays. <laughs> I, I figured those, those two are, that's a good, well. that is a great pair of books to read in relatively short periods of time, like around like, you know, read one, then the other, because that does sort of give you the history and the, uh, the current state of online advertising. So that's a good idea. So, so what did you, what did you I assume you listened to this in audible, right? Of course. Yeah, yes, of yeah. course. <laughs> I this is one of the books that I did both, right? I every now and then I'll get the uh the hybrid thing. I was doing a lot of driving then. But what what do you think of the book? What's uh what's your take on it? No, I think it's really, you know, as any book with like kind of an historical take on it, like the you know, having someone take the time to like put in context sort of like the creation of different media types followed by the um, attention merchants, right, advertisers, figuring out how to get the most out of those media types and then kind of seeing it play out over, and I guess in this case, decades, right? I mean, I think it was sort of, it probably picks up in like the 1920s or so, or even I guess around the time of uh, uh, the first newspaper. So I guess I was 1800 sometimes. And then yeah. kind of going through that because, you know, as um, we all are, right, we all suffer from recency bias. Like, it's like, oh, the internet, like everything is new. Nothing's ever been thought of. I'm, we're going to, we're thinking of it uh, all for the first time. It's like, actually, no, these problems have been, you know, recurrent throughout history. So first there was just, you know, and then I think it's where he starts, right, is um, the newspapers, right, at one point were just, all they were were articles written and you paid essentially what we would, today we would call subscription-based pricing, but you just, bought newspapers, right? That was the only way to get it. And the first example he shows is essentially newspapers selling the actual paper at a loss in favor of making tons of money on advertising, right? So this is something that, you know, has played out, I think, you know, probably five different times throughout, you know, at least in this book, um, through different media types. And I think this is, and I think that what what they do a really good job is sort of showing the tension between you know, you as a consumer of media, there's a certain amount of advertising that you will withstand, that you think is fair. And I think he talks about kind of the, the bargain, right? That there's sort of this implicit bargain consumers will, um, if you will, kind of commit to. But when you violate that bargain or that, uh, that fundamental agreement, you know, like today we call that spam or something, right? Then the whole medium can go down. And I think like to me, that's like a super important thing to think about any type of subscription versus ad business. It's like what is the implicit agreement that you're trying to create between the consumers and the advertisers? And then when that changes, right, uh, how much are you putting the whole medium at risk? So I thought it was you know, an excellent analysis of all of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean 
I, I I think I briefly mentioned this book last episode or something. I think that maybe that's uh but yeah, I, I mean I I've forgotten the part about uh figuring out the balance, but you're right, there there's uh that pops up there. I mean I think I think related that's in in the lean startup, I guess they call that the the product market fit. <laughs> right? And and uh you you can kind of see that scurrying around in uh in, in Chaos Monkeys when he's not uh, having a bunch of pillow talk is like how exactly are we gonna stick the ads in here? And like what's the tolerance people have for that, which which is interesting. But yeah, I, I, to the idea of like nothing is new, I think and I think I mentioned this last episode, what I other than the historical thing of it, what I found most interesting was that um the uh i guess you could call it disruption but the continual ignoring of of the incumbent of the new way of doing things like easily getting disrupted by someone else like it's just the ongoing story of uh the bias of not giving a fuck i guess <laughs> and and not not being paranoid about it and and the uh you know it's interesting to see that the transition from uh like and, and even the people like there's another innovative thing of like the people who do these tend to be like mavericky type of folks right like if i remember i forget the name of the person but the person who started first putting advertising in newspapers like eventually it became like the new york post or the new york times or something and his if i his characterization was he was kind of a reviled like scummy person like people didn't really like him and which which came about because he realized that the way you would get more papers is by covering salacious things uh people were very interested in that and so there was all sorts of like tabloidy things going on but you know and then eventually it like evens out and it's the way that all advertising respected it. I mean, papers respected it and not do. And then similarly, I think in a completely unexpected uh, turn of history or unexpected in reading history, you would have never guessed this. It's sort of like there's an extensive section on posters <laughs> now <laughs> and and how like posters were used were just like this is one of those things that's interesting about reading a book like this is you realize uh, everything has been innovated, right? Like posters were were someone had to figure that out and make up posters as a form of advertising uh that were widely used and then and then that bleeds into promoting people or promoting recruitment for world war 1 and all this uh interesting stuff but it's weird to think of posters as a uh, a form of advertising and then am i am i right in remembering there was all sorts of like laws passed against having posters and people hated posters that they were like invading into people's uh mental space and things like that yeah, yeah, exactly. There was the whole like, you know, the idea and I think the same thing with billboards, right? There was like there's, you know, different parts of the, at least in the US, interstates have billboards, but then there's, you know, been places that have passed a whole bunch of laws to take them down. So you kind of see this playing just much like spam and email, right? There's the same idea as like people use it, abuse it, and then uh, regulation comes in to kind of pull back from, you know, being too um aggressive with advertising in a certain medium. Yeah. So and then it goes through radio and television and the story pretty much repeats itself over again of like, here is a uh, true to the name of the book. Here's a channel of attention. We should try to sell stuff, some stuff to it. And and then and then yeah. before 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 we get to like, uh, I don't know, some some big picture questions. I think I think one of the because uh, it's it's a little hard to figure out what what's what's the author's name? His last name is is it is it Wu? I forget what his he, he was. I think uh, it's. Tim Wu? Yeah, yeah. Right, I'll look it up here. It's it's a little it's a fun game to figure out what his uh uh as 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 people would say what his agenda is. I mean, you kind of figure it out towards the end. 
Oh, because it's always you got it in a book like this. The last chapter is always like, what should we do? Uh, so you can kind of figure <laughs> it out. You know, I think editors should just be like, that's great. You should go post that on Medium, but we're not going to include it on the book. <laughs> but we're not, this, this is uh, the yeah. epilogue. It's yeah. always the epilogue. When, whenever I'm in a book like this, I'm always like, God damn it. Now I got to read this last chapter. I can't I can't be well, done. Because, yeah, because you have to finish it. Right. That's yeah. always the thing. I got to move. Do you think, you know. It, it, anyway, anyways, I was going to say before before we get to that, like I think there, is, despite, um, you you know, there's an interesting kind of unbiased, uh, not to sound like some libertarian nut job, but like he, there's an interesting passage I vaguely remember where he's like, look, if you don't have advertising, capitalism doesn't work. <laughs> he's like, you have to tell people stuff that they would spend money on, and so advertising is actually an incredibly viable, if not necessary thing that you need for all this capitalism to work. And I mean, I, I don't know if this is true because I'm not an academic, if you will, but it certainly feels true that if you don't have advertising, then I guess you go back to feudalism. <laughs> like, like you need advertising for, it might be too much to say you need it for democracy and like liberalism, but if you want to have like flows of cash being the bait, your platform for uh, removing suffering, it seems like you pretty much need advertising, which, which is an interesting, uh, again, that seems true. And then, and then I, so we should return back to that topic, but what do you think you having freshly read it? What do you think his deal is? What do you think the author is trying to uh, throw out here as uh, as as his agenda, or what he thinks we should do about all this advertising? Well, I think to even go back on your last question, I think the book even starts around talking about like let's break advertising down to really what it is, just advocating on behalf of some product, service, or set of ideas. And I think the first advertisers, right, is always the case in humanity. It's usually religion and the government, right? And so he does a pretty good job explaining about how religion really utilized or, if you will, invented a lot of these ideas to like both promote their ideas and then recruit, in this case, customers, but we would call them believers in that faith, right? And then the government, you know, there's actually quite a bit of time talking about how the government is persuading people not only to, you know, uh, join the army, right? There's a, several issues in uh, a draft, but also, you know, using it to, if you will, paint the narrative of of their enemies and like why they believe what they are. So, I think what it comes down to is this notion, like we call it advertising, and I think we think sometimes like, oh, we're just going to turn off all the commercials. But to your question, right, is like it's just a, a fundamental human need. If you're trying to bring any type of new idea, complete project. You know, start a new company, or you know, just uh, convince your children, right, to like go do something. Like you are by nature advertising, right? You're like think about you know yourself on vacation is like, you know, when I'm trying to convince my son, like let's go to dinner. I want to go here, and it's going to be great, you know. <laughs> and you're and it's like, what are you doing? You're advertising. You're advocating. And so, so this notion that you know, while we the any type of I mean, this would be some Seth Godin, right? Advertising that just interrupts us, that isn't contextual is what I think we think of most of the time when we think about advertising. Like we find that very, very annoying. And this is where you do the 30-second skip on your DVR. You maybe put an ad blocker in on your browser because you're just annoyed, right? But advertising that is both contextual and also relevant and maybe sometimes entertaining is something we're going to welcome, right? We're going to welcome that into our lives because that's sort of that's what we need to like complete some task or to learn something new or to you know just be a happier person. So that book really does – he does a good job I think 
showing these different techniques. And I think, you know, his agenda, I kind of think is mostly, hey, you should, we should always be aware of these things, right? We should be aware of what's happening to us in advertising. Um, but at the same time, we need to like understand that the benefits, there is some benefits to it. But then, you know, and he goes through a pretty extensive, um, I think, discussion of like, the people that came up with snake oil, right? Snake oil was originally this like magic device that like, I can't remember, had some property, helped you like your skin or something, but it kind of talks about, well, this is just really lying, right? And that's, now snake oil is obviously used as a, you know, kind of a reference to like some, some product that just lies to you, right? So I think his agenda is, you know, you need to be aware of that, but I do think at the end, you know, he does kind of, you know, start to edge up against a very utopian, you know, belief that like, Hey, we need to have less of this. We need to turn it off, um, you know. And you know, there's a world beyond advertising, and that's probably, you know, it's it'd be interesting to talk to him. But I, I kind of feel like maybe that's a little bit, you know, getting getting too high on the horse. Like I don't think this is ever going to go away. So I don't know if we ever fully reach his vision. But I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not totally sure what his point of view is. So what what did you think? Yeah, yeah no, I I think I think. Uh, uh... You know, to, to, to tie in another thing we mention on the uh, sidelines every now and then, like, I haven't finished that Sapiens book by far. Turns out it's a very long book, Brandon. I don't know if you, uh, I don't know if you <laughs> tap is, that little part in your Kindle thing where it tells you the number of pages. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's starting to develop the theory of like, uh, humans, humans, uh, treat stories as a technology and belief systems and, and how you're susceptible to that. And, and I think he's more or less made the case that that's the prime, dif- the, the, the first differentiator of humans versus, uh, everything else, right? And just to briefly summarize, if it's sort of like, uh, he starts off talking about it with gossip and how he uses whatever that funky thing is that you can only like know a hundred people or 150 or whatever. And so in order to scale, yeah. to use the terminology of our term, in order to scale human endeavor, you need to have, uh, stories and beliefs and, and gossip and all that. Well, gossip's at the, the small unit. As they would say, the the team man leadership unit, and then stories allow you to scale it up to the enterprise. And so, to that end, yeah, like like that's what you need: um, advertising, for lack of a better word, or or sending out information for. And I think I think yeah, your characterization is right. It's like it's not knowing about things, which is a very kind way of saying advertising. It's not knowing about things we're opposed to. It's deceit. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, like we don't want to be tricked into a lie or deceit. And, you know, at the very least, that advocates for a um, uh, some amount of regulation uh, from some authority. Right. One would presume the government would be the best authority. Uh, but I guess an ad blocker is a good authority, too. Or increasingly, I guess you could. I don't know what it is Facebook and Google would do, but, you know, they would be a good authority, too, to find deceitful things. I guess there's all that fake news stuff. But. That is like, I mean, I actually kind of forget the conclusion, but but it is like, if anything, I mean, he's also like, if I remember one of the main original thought leaders of net neutrality, which would make you think that like some amount of regulation to sort of set the game parameters is probably wise. And, you know, I've made fun of the idea that uh, that freedom, like an in insurance and stuff like that is a stupid way of saying like, how about you pay more for less? But there, it, it does seem like, if someone is like lying in advertising, it's probably a good idea to have some regulation and law around that, right? Like going back to the, the, the snake oil, I'd forgotten about that part too, but like, you know, the snake oil thing of like, uh, 
probably for the seller and the buyer. On the buyer side, if someone is selling you a product that makes claims that turn out to be false, like either cigarettes are healthy or if you rub this oil on you, it'll cure cancer, it's probably a good idea to stop that. And on the buyer side, it's better that you have the government just fine you than, you know, the villagers strip you down, cover you in hot tar and feathers and put you on a a rail and hopefully you survive being kicked out of the village, right? Like the uh, allowing the village to regulate versus the government is probably not that good if you want to be a a liar yourself. Much better to pay money. But no, absolutely. And he kind of does. He goes, there's a whole chapter, I think, talking about how a lot of this advertising is what led to the uh, what Federal Drug Administration and, you know, different types of standards that get tested. And that's, you know, that's something you kind of see throughout the book is sort of these like extreme behavior leads to regulation and then too much regulation sort of leads to like new ideas um, and then, it, you know, the cycle repeats over and over. So, you know, ideally – we could all just sit down and think think it through and agree up front, but that's just not the way the world works. It's, I think this is how it's always going to be, like someone pushing the envelope, government stepping in, and then, you know, um, the whole process starts over again. So so this is like – this this is like brings up uh, a related topic and bringing it back to the tech world. Like it seems like – and what, what's nice about the attention merchants is is you get this historic understanding as we were talking about. Like these these issues come up over and over again and – they more or less, if, if you're an abstractionist, right, the same pattern of a solution emerges, right? Like it's like, oh, people trying to lie. Uh, you regulate that, right? Like it just comes up over and over again. <laughs> and, and every single time, whatever the medium, people are resistant to it. Now, slightly related. So I don't really know very much about what is it the EU was finding Google for antitrust stuff, but I, I was listening to a few things like that. That Slate Money podcast is kind of delightful. That's a fun one to listen to. And and it seems like a recurring thing in, in antitrust is the thing you're regulating, all of the all of the businesses have moved on for that. And so as and, and I don't know why I'm bringing this up, but it makes me think of it like like the, the thing there is sort of like um, I guess the EU like found Google guilty. I don't know if they use that terminology. They had violated some antitrust things. They don't call it frugal anymore. But in their comparison shopping thing, it was shutting out Bing showing comparison shopping. I don't know. It's, it's kind of weird. But then I've started they, they pointed this out and I started to no- notice this that like. I think I saw some figure that only 23 or 25% of people when they want to buy something start at Google and the rest of them just like go to Amazon directly. And so it's almost like, who cares? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. like, like the, the, the regulation stuff that's happening here, it, it's, it's opportunistic maybe in the sense that you can win that perse- prosecution. But it's, it, it, it so it, what I'm getting to is, the pattern that emerges over and over again in attention merchants, and I think we kind of see in technology antitrust, is there's this misunderstanding of what the companies are doing. It's like, usually, like I used to have this old maxim that if the, um, who are the antitrust people in, in, is it the Justice Department? I guess they pursue all of that, right? Like, that like if you don't have Justice Department lawyers knocking on your doors as a big company constantly, you're doing it wrong, right? Like you always need to be like pushing the boundaries of how you profit. I mean, that's a very cynical way of thinking about it. But it's sort of like 
if if you're going to go against someone for like antitrust behavior, it should probably be for something that like actually matters, that has a huge effect on things. And right. it seems like but that's I, not always the case of what's going on. Yeah. And and you kind of read about that in advertising to some extent, right? Yeah. Like, no, I think, well, in the Google case, it was really, you know, I think the government, I guess the Department of Justice, DOJ, as you're saying, they're always at just a, a total disadvantage but because by the time it's apparent, usually something else is like happened to kind of make it irrelevant but in the case of google right i think they were you know ultimately and they did some pretty you know reasonable analysis of it around the, just showing that google was essentially showing its product links its old frugal links above its competitors right or basically giving it preferential treatment so in this case they were both you know they were both the uh, the judge and the jury if you will right they sort yeah. of saw what you were querying they showed their own stuff and they relegated the other stuff below it so you know, ultimately, but then you know, as you kind of already articulated, then it doesn't really matter because now it turns out when you want to buy something, everyone just goes to Amazon directly. So it doesn't, you know, there really isn't any, if anything, Amazon is the monopoly that we have to be, well, sort of yeah. that has appeared as to be more worrisome. But, you know, the thing that's always interesting about this, and, you know, I think the part that you're getting at, and the part that, like, if there's value in, Per, um, sort of this prosecution by different, you know, agencies. It's that you know companies are under always two pressures, right? One is to grow, and two is to maximize revenue. So, as often is the case, like I think you know, back to uh, the book, right? That you know, Google started off very much anti-advertising, right? There was a time that you know they wouldn't even put any ads on there, right? And then it became sort of accepted practice that ads showing at the very top and on the side were okay, but ads where you just bought placement were definitely not, right? So there's sort of like a convention emerged, but as he kind of talks about in that book, is like companies are always under this pressure to deliver growth and more revenue. And over time, right, those standards, if you will, you know, they're just like any other human being, right? You just if if you know, you'd have to make more money then you, know, you start to soften your stance against like, well, you know, we didn't put ads here, but now we'll put a, a few more here, right? And then suddenly, at some point, somebody says you went over the line. So it's not so much that I think their action is going to like, you know, fixing that problem is going to be a good thing, but maybe just as a larger entity trying to keep Google in check, right, um, yeah. is is not such a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, and, and I guess like like I I don't remember if if uh, if the attention merchant details this, but maybe this is why my this is what I was meandering towards. Is it like it seems like one of the theories of regulation is, and you get different ways of arriving this. At some point, the the private industry thing like Google or uh, newspapers or uh, radio waves, although that one's fraught because the government like claims ownership of radio waves and leases it. But let's put that aside at the moment. But at some point, this privately owned thing uh, becomes enough of a commons, if you will, that, quote unquote, everyone, everyone agrees it should be regulated. And and like, I don't, the heuristic of when that flip happens is always very confusing. And I don't think is documented. And so like, one could read through the attention merchants and try to analyze when that flip occurred and try to reverse engineer a heuristic for it, right? And so, so like, you know, there's three cases uh, going back to the tech world. One, what we were just talking about, it's sort of like Google and like, who the fuck has a right to say what they can put on their page, <laughs> right? Like, it's just like, yeah, that's business, right? Like, why would you regulate one toothpaste from saying 
it's better than their rival toothpaste, right? Or, or, or like, you know, you could also say things like maybe there is regulation around this, but you know, at a grocery store, you can pay to have your stuff placed prominently. Like, should that right. be regulated? Right? Like that seems hella unfair, but whatever. Uh, and, uh, and and then the second one is, and this is probably well enough documented that I could look it up, but I was never really clear what the Microsoft antitrust stuff was, right? Like at the end of the day, I think there was something about that was had nothing to do with on the face of it. There was sort of like, you know, strong arm tactics in the channel and stuff like that, which is a whole other thing than, I don't know, maybe that was the whole thing, but like the idea, I was never comfortable with the idea that Windows was a monopoly, uh, right. In the sense that like, well, of course it's a monopoly, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> and w- which brings up the third thing, which on, on the, uh, the slate money thing they were saying is like, how about this Apple app store? So you've got this huge thing that only Apple can sell through and then they take a cut of everything. So what's going on there? Right. And so that would be an interesting like mental test to go through is like, when would the Apple App Store turn into enough of a commons that the heuristic flips and now it can be regulated, right? Like, like I, I don't know how that heuristic is determined or, or, or how it I runs. think it's mostly around market share. So, like, go back to the old the Windows Netscape case, right? The argument there was, you know, at that point, I think Windows probably was, like, high 90%, right, of, of uh, computers, at least desktops at that time, were using Windows. And so when they said they were going to bundle the browser and essentially shut out Netscape, you know, that was the, because the market share was so high, right? That was essentially cutting off the, like an entire, you know, market. There was just no competition. Now what we found, you know, use a little Ben Thompson of our exponent fame, right? Is that like, it actually turned out not to be a problem because owning the browser was irrelevant, right? It was actually everything inside the browser that mattered. And Microsoft had no ability to, you know, essentially, uh, control that, right? So this right. is where Google and all that. So, so I think and I think that's where you know, from a, a monopoly standpoint, that's what I think most of these guys are looking at. So, like Google certainly isn't the only search engine out there, but its market share is so big now. The fact that they, if they start to do this, that sure you could use something else, but by default. You know, if Google makes some certain change, they basically are deciding which businesses can can even exist, right? If you know, if you're not listed in Google for certain businesses, that's just the end of you know, that's death, yeah. right? So there's always this point. I think Facebook is the other one that's often talked about now, where I think it just went over two billion um, members or you know, active users, and then mm-hmm. you know, it essentially represents almost everybody that's online, right? I think, you know, I mean, there's maybe 6 billion people on earth, but a lot of people for different reasons aren't online. So they're approaching this point where it, you know, if, you know, only if they're the biggest network and, and to be a network, you have to have everybody on a network, then like, what do you do? Right. I mean, there is no other competition. So this is where I think people that look at monopolies are always sort of, you know, are most worried. Now you flip that around and we had our conversation about Amazon, last week and it's like well amazon buying whole foods it's like well that's you know i mean, whole foods is probably less than five percent of all the groceries you know in the united states so there's really no you know I mean, there's a lot of competition still left yeah. so and I, I think you know the fundamental thing is it's not so much that like you can't win i mean i think the old saying about a monopoly is like it's not illegal to gain a monopoly it's illegal then to use that monopoly to prevent competition and then this is the you know the thing that people the libertarians don't like but maybe the more pragmatist, 
pragmatic person does is that like you need what you need competition to make democracy and capitalism work right you just you know if you don't have the competition and you know without one you don't have the other so this is why you have to step in right going back to standard oil and other at&t and things like that that's why at some points you do have to break things up to keep the system going right so yeah um, but it's always very controversial and 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 i guess that to try to like to try to like pull all that together and sort of like do the the mad iglesias style right where and and what i mean by that is sort of the uh the uh paint the pictures of what the basic desires are and then work backwards to see if the current policy fits those basic desires and if they don't you're a fucking hypocritical idiot that's pretty much his <laughs> his gamut uh who should be reviled and run out on the rail metaphorically or literally he certainly sounds yes. that extreme but anyways <laughs> and 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 i guess you know i i forget i uh, as to bring him up again i think i think uh, you know, is it John Allworth and or, or whatever the guy's name on Exponent? Like him and Ben Thompson. It, it, over a couple episodes, they explain all this and and the basic premise. You you hit upon, I think. I, I think is it the American one that they were saying that antitrust. There's a European style and an American style, and it's all about what you're trying to do. And and one of the I think the American style on the face of it is about consumer choice and consumer good. Right. That like if there is only if there's someone who has 90 percent market, then consumers, citizens will have less choice and they will suffer. Now, maybe that suffering is like there's not enough innovation in the Nerf gun market, but like there won't be enough, you know, versus like, I don't know, we don't have 50 types of bread. Right. Like if, if we only had one big bread company, we would never have gotten those little those tiny butter, those little uh, hockey disc breads that are less calories. But because we got all these bread people, there's lots of innovation. So consumers benefit. So their heuristic is basically like whoever if you have more than whatever percent market share, innovation will stop. Consumers will pay more prices and people will suffer. Right. Yes. And and then I guess the European style was like. Don't worry about the consumers so much. We care about competitors. So if it's hard for a rival to come up and they simply can't establish themselves because it's just impossible to enter the market because of your portarian five forces of supplier chain stuff or whatever, then that's where we regulate. Like we, we want to make it possible for, for businesses to thrive, which it's a kind of ironic because you would think the American system would value the second one, but. In reality, they probably both value the same thing, but I, I think what they were saying is that the, the law is written in that way. And so it, it does seem like, and that gets back to, I think, uh, a lot of what you were saying is like, so then ultimately there's sort of like the, this, this, this good for who, like who's the audience for this that we're going after? And, and it gets very confusing if for a consumer using the app store example, right? Like, well, it turns out that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> or or like or like to to google like facebook would be another good example is like well we had the internet for like we had the consumer internet for maybe like 15 years or so you know you could kind of say 20 uh probably i i would start the consumer internet whenever remember that o'reilly book the whole internet bible or almanac <laughs> where it had like yes. all of the internet printed in 300 pages like yes. that was sort of the beginning of the consumer internet and then at the moment <laughs> the consumer internet is basically facebook and then like you know putting dog whiskers on people's faces and shit like that and like from some perspective if you were like the open web people you would be like that is totally terrible it's impossible for us to enter the market of facebook and all that and then you get you know ben thompson's aggregation theory 
but I don't know. It's sort of like, but everyone seems to really like it. And and then what's difficult is like everyone seemed to like Windows too. <laughs> so like, like man, it would be really hard to figure out like a very genuine way of figuring out when you need to break up the companies. Because I mean, you cited the I would think the textbook example of like. Uh, we gave AT&T a monopoly and their innovation was the princess phone, which is they made the phone pink. <laughs> right? right. And of course right. they had, they had other things, right. But it was just like, there was no innovation because there was no need for competition. And I don't know. So it seems like that's where the divide is. Like you're either fighting for consumer good or you're fighting for competition, which engen- this is, I think, the libertarian argument, right? Which engenders innovation, which engenders, uh, you know, more choice or whatever. I don't know if engender is the right word, but uh, yeah. I think that's a good way to look at it. I think the only other thing I'd add there is just like the European style tends to be have a much stronger look at like the individual and privacy, right? Like just I think the yeah, EU yeah, especially. Yeah. It's, that's true. Um, just given its like uh, its structure and you know kind of like the various independent countries that are in it, like they really do take and anyone that's ever done you know ship products in you know different regions kind of sees this. The regulations they have on you know individual privacy much much stronger. Whereas I think in the United States we just kind of look at it like well, you know we just want to have good products and like yeah you know we have more lax regulation around that. And again, I think it comes back to like, what are you working on? Like, I think you use privacy and competition. I think here it's more innovation, right? We want to make sure we have innovation at every level and something's happening and, you know, manifest destiny, if you will, right? That's sort of the American, any, anyone could do anything, right? And it's just like wild west. So it's it's interesting, you know, the two continents even now, right? Still, still different to this day, given all the history. Yeah, yeah. Americans have a weird, complicated relationship with privacy, you know, capital P privacy. Like it's always, I don't need, I don't, that's a, that's a topic for another time, but it's always baffling to me. Like we're like, because, because, and I'll explain why, like we have this, we're basically paranoid that everyone is out to get us. <laughs> right. Like, like everyone's got an angle. In fact, there's even like, there's even like a, a joke. That's how they get you. Like, we always want to know that's like all the way from like buffets to Brazilian barbecue places to the government. Someone's always out to get you. Right. Like, there's always some trick that they're doing. And like, even with privacy, it's like, even if you have some system to regulate privacy, most Americans are going to think that it's some system to actually violate your privacy. <laughs> like, it's always like it's a fraught, weird area, whereas it seems like at least the governments of the Europe from the little snippets of Europe that I seem to read, like they're just like, yeah, you know how you do privacy? You just tell people what they can and cannot do. Done. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. But uh, to simplify it. So, uh well, there you go. Attention merchants. You should check that out. So let me ask you one more question. So the Sapiens book, Brandon, I asked this uh-huh. in Twitter and I only got a few replies. So is this like, is this like him just thinking a bunch of stuff or is it like academic? Cause there's a bunch of like great theories in there, but as I read it, he almost kind of like disproves himself. He'll be like, uh, it's impossible for scientists to talk about the daily life of people 10,000 years ago. And then there's four chapters on the daily life of people 10,000 years ago. And so, like, what should I treat this more of, like, you know, philosophy or like softish science or something? How does it pan out? Um, I kind of think of it's more like soft science. So I think he's sort of putting together, like, because I think when he when he does that stuff, like, I think he usually is just qualifying and saying, "Listen, 
you know, you can't know everything, but based on what we do know, right? Here's here's my theory, right? This is my scientific yeah, yeah. theory, and then then he provides some supporting evidence. So, you know, because I think maybe to that one example, I think he's like, you know, we're never going to know exactly what was in the minds of, uh, you know, our you know Homo sapien ancestors. You know, 100 percent is not going to be possible, but we, you know, make some um, some assumptions. But I I think you know to me it's a very, uh, you know, again I found it like. You know, as I already mentioned, like you know, super compelling. So I think, you know, the biggest thing to take away from that, I, is is the words. I guess to me, it's narrative and story, right? And yeah, I guess that's yeah. where he kind of takes it. Is like these are the, the good. These are the tools that we as mammals possess that no other species does. And we've done some good things and we've done some bad things. Yeah. And and then when you start to really kind of unwind that in your mind, you you see it every day, right? You see it every single day. Um, you know, people are creating some type of story and, and just like even this weekend, you know, like I was watching some movies and you're, you know, kind of listening to the news. It's, it's always the same structure. So, um, I think it's really important, you know, to be aware of that. And I think that's, you know, like I said, that's his, his, you know, to summarize, I mean, like I said, it's probably, I don't even know how many pages it is. It's long, right? So it's yeah. like, that's a lot of stuff. So there's a lot of supporting arguments, yeah. there, but it's good. It's worth, I guess, so I guess to answer your question, I, I do think it's, I felt like it was more scientific, but um, if someone you know wanted to debate that and be like, it's really just a philosophy, you know, I, okay, I get it. I mean, I don't know. The line there is probably hard to to draw. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think I think I think it's. Uh, I always was confused about what metaphysics was, but it's kind of metaphysical in in that sense of. Uh, before we get to the recommendations, I feel like as I'm reading it, I feel like it's the culmination of uh, uh, friend of the podcast Frederick Nietzsche's book. Thus spoke the Zarathustra and all the rest of his work. The uh, Mister Mister God is dead because you start reading it and you're like, oh, he just said that there is no truth to anything except death, right? I mean, he doesn't put it that way, but it's just like all these notions we have about morals and ethics and gods and religions are they're very handy tools that help us survive. Next chapter, and you're like, hold on, <laughs> what what did you just say there, buddy? So uh, yeah, it, it, it's, I thought like that was like to me the way he that. There's lots of other books we could talk about. Like I'm sure, like way off topic now, but they take a very strong position and like just delivering that point of view. Kind of people yeah. trying to deliver that point of view, like their delivery distracts everybody. Whereas you know he's just sort of, and I think this is the whole, like to make to slightly change that a little bit. I think he's just saying there's a lot of reasons people you know give that all these things, morality and the honesty and all these things that you know there's lots of reasons people give that these exist, right? But if we put those reasons under real scrutiny, we'll probably figure out we just made that stuff up. Now, if you can keep going back and figure it out, then you know maybe uh, maybe there's something else. But you know, yeah, yeah no, just, and, and just, that's 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 what I mean by culmination is is it's uh, it's done completely self-aware, and there is no problem declaring all that. It's just like, oh yeah, I mean everyone thinks this right, so we're done. Like there's no there's no uh, there's no there's no counter arguing, which which is. Uh, and and I guess you're right. Like you go read the other people, and they make a big deal about making this point, which is distracting uh, from it. So, what's your recommendation for this week? Well, we talked a lot about books and Audible this week. So I actually uh, got a pair of AirPods on uh, this weekend, and they are fantastic. I just want to uh, pile in with my year late review of. I think AirPods are just phenomenal. It makes Audible even more accessible than it ever has been, and I really enjoy them. I mean, it's it, it's simple to say we just took away a cord. What's the big deal? But it's a huge difference, whether you're doing chores, working out, or just trying to quickly grab um, your uh, earbud and answer a phone call. I just find them mm. uh, phenomenal, and I totally get what uh, 
you know, it makes more sense, right? We talk about Apple all the time, and it's like, yeah, like, you know, they get rid of the port, you know, the old uh, headphone jack, because really, after you start using, you know, uh, wireless uh, AirPods like this, and I'm sure there will be others to come at some point, like, it's like, yeah, you're never going to go back. You don't want this cord hanging out and, like, you know, getting caught and preventing you from doing stuff. So get some AirPods uh, and listen to your favorite podcast, Audible, make phone calls, music, whatever. They're awesome. Yeah, I, I should try those out because I feel like, the problem I have a lot with uh, uh, phones is it brushes up against my beard, headphones, and uh, that makes it impossible to use as uh, as convenient phones and stuff. So I'll, I'll, that would be good to check out. That's a good recommendation. Sold. Well, my recommendation this week, I just thought of it, and I'm talking so that I can remember it. What? Oh. What was it? Oh, I know. It's a pre-recommendation. We'll have to come back next time and see if this worked. But my my son, you know, my son's iPad already cracked because my daughter was frustrated one day and threw it on the sidewalk, which you know, pro move by the uh, <laughs> then two and a half year old. Uh, but the cracking is not a problem, not a big deal. But something happened. I we can't we don't know what, but like half of it is just these multicolored stripes. It's all fuzzy. It's and and I looked it up. This is some sort of LCD problem. And I looked up, Apple wants to charge you like $299 to ship it in to get it fixed. But there's a, out of 86 reviews, five-star rated place over on Far West, like Far West ATX phone repair. So I'm going to take it over there for $179. They tell me they'll fix it. And uh, the review is not so much that place, but I have a feeling that getting your screen fixed on a phone is actually pretty cheap compared to like buying a new phone. And I had never really entertained the notion that you would just get a screen fixed which shows you what I know. So we'll see how that pans out. I mean, if it, if it just gets fixed for $180, that's amazing, right? Like, it's just like, what, what a world. So, uh, so with that, as always, this has been Software Defined Talk. If you want to see the show notes, including all the discounts code we, codes we didn't mention to, that link to a Casper job, you should go help them be uh, do their SRE stuff, keep things up and running. Looks like a great place to work. Uh, you can see the direct link to that, or you just go to jobs at casper.com, or I should say email to there, or you can actually go in your web browser, which turns out is not the control point for a monopoly. Go in your web browser to casper.com slash jobs and uh, check that out. Be sure to say that uh, you heard about them here. But you can see links to that and all the other discounts like DevOps Days, Minneapolis, and some other places if you go to softwaredefinedtalk.com slash 98. And at this point, you know, uh, it's always good if you go write an iTunes review. That's lovely. Make sure you're subscribing to the podcast. You can find links over there at the softwaredefinedtalk.com. And really, if you just refer it to your friend's word of mouth, if you think they would be interested in listening to it and uh, tell us every now and then in Twitter or wherever that, uh, that you enjoy it. That's all That's all we, we like around here. Other than, you know, legit ads. Those are cool, too. And we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye.